You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. In church, so good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Tyler Armstrong. If you're a guest with us, I'm the student pastor here. Uh, Thomas is out of town. Um, he is at a training to be a crisis counselor. And so he is down in uh, Dolphin Island, and so um, his family dodged the hurricane this week, but they did have a lot of storm surge, so, uh, but at the same time they are down there, um, and so just I'm filling in this week. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 18, is where we're going to be coming out of this morning, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Now today, we are going to be focusing in on how to study the Bible, particularly in the act of application. Um, how to apply the text, how to apply the biblical scriptures. Now, this series, I'm going to be honest, when it first was kind of birthed in Thomas's mind, I looked at him and said, I don't know how you're going to do this. Uh, I, I, I just said, I don't know how this is going to work. Because in my mind, and just the way that I think the church should work, is that the Sunday morning time should we be proclaiming the gospel and going about these things, and then we equip in other ways. But then Thomas looked at me and said, Tyler, when else are we gathering? I said, you got a point, all right? So um, I still looked at him and said, I still don't know how you're going to do this. Y'all, when you see Thomas, tell him thank you so much because this series has been so good for our church and for me. I mean, I mean, even for me. So I'm telling you thank you right now, Thomas, if you're watching this online. Um, this series has been so, so good. Um, some of you have been really just trying to learn how to study the Bible, and this has been such a great series for that. I'm going to read the one verse that is taken out of context and applied in so many wrong ways, and then we're going to go back and read the text in its entirety in just a bit. Verse 20 in Matthew 18. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I remember hearing this verse as a kid, as a child, and thinking to myself, why in the world am I praying for myself if Jesus isn't even here? Y'all ever thought that? You hear that verse and you go, why in the world am I going to Jesus? Why in the world are, am I saying, Jesus, do these things for me, if there has to be two or three people gathered in his name to be among us? Well, the problem is, is that's a result of misapplication of the text. Misapplication of the text. We take this verse and we take it and make it mean for for like church gatherings, we take it and we make it mean for like where two or more believers are gathered, there he is, which he is there. But at the same time, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us to go into the closet and pray in secret. Well, if we're going to the closet and praying in secret, does that mean I call up two of my homies and be like, hey man, come get my closet with me so we can pray? That'd be kind of weird, right? In all reality, this text is taken out of context because of a misapplication. So let's do a review. Now, I'm not going to go into the depth, obviously, of what we've studied the last three weeks. If you want to go back and listen to that, if you're online, if this is your first time tuning in, go back on Facebook. All the sermons are on there. The entire service is on there. And you can go on our website as well and listen to the podcast. But the first key to proper study of the Bible is observation. Establish a basic knowledge of the text. Uh, there are six questions that I would encourage you to go to. This is the sword method. One of my friends told me about this. Um, he said this, what does this, message, what does this passage say about God? 
What does this passage say about people? Is there a sin to avoid in this passage? Is there a promise to believe? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? Now, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do this. Email hope, H-O-P-E, at 12th.co after the service because I talk really fast, okay? And you can get the notes, okay? Just want to make sure because, like, if we go too fast, that this isn't like an lecture series, like, can you please go back to that? All right, we can't go back. We've got to keep going, all right? People get hungry in church. Somebody said amen over there. Come on. All right, so... Now, the second part is not after observation, establishing a basic knowledge of what the text is saying is interpretation. This is where you go to your commentaries or to your study Bible. Now, I brought my study Bible in here this morning. I'm actually preaching from it this morning. The ESV study Bible. This is my favorite study Bible that I own. And it is almost, seriously, there are only two seminary books that are required in every class. And one of them is the ESV study Bible. It is highly recommended in every one of my seminary classes. It is that good of a study Bible. Now, you may be wondering, Tyler, that looks like a really expensive Bible. Well, whoever bought me this one bought me the biggest one. All right? Like, it is like the, it is like the behemoth of study Bibles. But here's the thing. Fun fact. I've learned this the other day. You can go to Hobby Lobby, and they have Christian books for sale at Hobby Lobby. And they have an ESV study Bible there all on sale for $28. All right, $28. Now, you can't go to Hobby Lobby today. They're closed. All right? Closed on Sunday, just like Chick-fil-A. But you can go there tomorrow and get you an ESV study Bible. This is where study Bibles come into play. I would encourage you not to go to a study Bible right off the bat. Don't go to a study Bible right off the bat because the thing about study Bibles is, is that the Bible, the text is up here, and then this is what the study notes are at the bottom. Now, you can't probably see this online. But the thing is, is that these words are inspired and infallible and are the words of God. These are the words of man. These are not infallible and inerrant. Okay? That's why I encourage you, go to just a plain Bible before you come to a study Bible. Go to the text before you go to a commentary on the text. And that's how you understand the meaning. And then you let the Scripture interpret Scripture. You go to the text and you say, listen, how does this text, how does this meaning of the text fit in along with the rest of Scripture? Because this is where application comes into its faults, okay? This is the two issues I've seen with application. Now, application means this, taking what you have observed and interpreted to apply it to your life. Taking what you have observed and interpreted to apply it to your life. If my seminary class in hermeneutics, which means how to properly study the Bible, how to properly study the Bible, they teach us how to do that in seminary, has six different steps. The last one is application. Six different steps. The last one's application. The problem is, this is how many people think Bible study starts. These are the issues with application. Many believe this is how Bible study starts. They say this, what does this verse mean to me? Okay, now, this is the problem here. Okay, let me, let me explain why this is an issue. One of the great things that came out of the Protestant Reformation is this. We can personally interpret the Bible. One of the issues that came out of the Protestant Reformation is this. We can personally interpret the Bible. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying the Protestant Reformation is wrong, but I'm saying this, is that we've taken this individual freedom to interpret the Bible, and we take the text, 
And we go in there and we say, well, this is what this verse means to me. Now, let's just say that me and Charles Nichols are in a Sunday school class with Bob Blum. And Bob's teaching us. And as Bob is teaching, Charles goes, but Bob, that's not what that verse means to me. And I look at Charles and Bob and go, but that's not what that verse means to me. Okay, who's right? Does God speak to all three of us differently? Okay, the answer is no. Okay? The answer is 100% no. There is only one meaning to every text in the Bible. One meaning. There's not this like underlying spiritual meaning to the text that you have to like take this Bible verse and add this Bible verse and then add them up and then it comes up to be some kind of number and all this stuff. I had a lady give me a book about that once and I literally looked at her and I was like, what is this? Okay, verse numbers weren't in there originally. It was originally just a letter. You're not looking for this allegorical meaning where you're diving into the text and go, well, like the tree means this. and all. The Bible's not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to be just like spiritual hidden knowledge. But there's only one meaning to every text. And the way you figure that out is by going to the historical, cultural context of that text. What did it mean to the original audience who heard this? And the way you can learn that is through a study Bible. In its literary context, when we say we take the Bible literally, that means that we take it at its literary value. The Bible is a book containing multiple books. The Bible is more like a library that you're carrying in your hand. And there's multiple types of genres in there. There's poetry, there's prophetic text. You're not going to interpret Revelation the same way you're going to interpret Romans. It just doesn't work that way. You can't interpret the Psalms the way you interpret this text in Matthew. It just doesn't work that way. You have to go to the text at its literary context. And then you grasp the meaning of the text. And that's where you look at the text and you study it and you interpret it and you do all these things. And you go, okay, this is what this verse means. The problem is, is if we come to it first and go, what does this text mean to me? You start taking verses out of context and then the application does not align with the text meaning. Let me give you some examples. I'll put them up there on the screen. First off, Philippians 4.13. Okay, I, I meant to grab my, my baseball glove before I came up here. I have my baseball glove, and it's so funny, from high school, I wrote all these Bible verses on the inside of my baseball glove, and every one of them are out of context. It is so funny. I look back, and I'm like, man, I have grown so much. Like, sanctification, baby, let's go. All right, thank you, Holy Spirit. Philippians 4.13. Okay, so I had a friend of mine who... Um, He's a, he's, he's a semi-professional boxer, a friend of mine from high school. And the other day, I see on his Facebook page, he was fighting somewhere somewhere in Tennessee or something. And on his Facebook page, he put Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you think that Paul had in his mind about the fact that he was about to knock a brother out? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, that is not a proper application of that text. All right, Tim Tebow. Put that on his eye black. Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13. God was not concerned with that football game. Revival did not break out because he put it on his eye black. Okay, let's go ahead and say it. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ and strength. I'm going to run this brother over. That's not what that text means. If you look at it in its context, it's about finding contentment in Christ. Finding contentment in Christ. Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, and a ho- uh, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and for a future. Okay, that verse is not about high school graduation. 
That verse is not meant to be on a coffee cup. If you look at it in its literary historical context, go up just a few verses before. It says, after you have been in Babylon for 70 years. That's the Tyler Armstrong paraphrase version. How many of you all have been in Babylon for 70 years? Okay, nobody, all right? Just making sure we didn't have any Israelites in here. That text is talking about a hope after the exile of Babylon. Now, when we go to it and we properly apply it, we can take those promises of a hope in the future and realize that the fulfillment of that text is found in Christ Jesus, not in finding a good job, not in making a lot of money. It's about Christ Jesus. That's the hope and the plan for the future for us and for those Israelites. That's the hope and the plan. And then today's text, Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So if you're by yourself praying this afternoon, sorry, Jesus isn't there. Not necessarily. That is not what this text means. So the way that we properly apply is that we look at these theological principles that are in the Scriptures, then we look and say, okay, this principle that I've gathered here, how does it align with the rest of the Bible? If it aligns with the rest of the Bible, then you probably found the meaning. And then how do those principles address the original audience? And then how do they address me? And this is the thing about applications. They can and they need to be very specific. They can and need to be very specific. The notes that are on the screen are now come from my um, hermeneutic textbook. Applications can and need to be very specific. So Philippians 4.13, a great application of that text is when you are broke as all get out and you're sitting at home I can do all things through Christ and strengthens me because he's my contentment. When you're rich and you are rolling in the money, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is what Paul is talking about, finding contentment in Christ because Christ is our contentment. So let's put this all to practice. Let's go into the text, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Underline two or three witnesses right there if you underline in your Bible. That's one of the things about observation. We look for repetition in the text. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you, underline that, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Another verse taken out of context a lot. Verse 20, for where two or three, underline again, are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray right now as we dive into this text and we observe, interpret, and apply it, I pray that what we will see is that while this text is taken out of context, God, you do promise us your presence. You do promise us that you will be among us in what we will learn today as church discipline. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So church discipline is what this text is talking about. Now, one of the first times I ever heard this text preached, pretty funny, was that I saw you at the poll rally about probably about seven or eight years ago. Um, pretty funny. Um, Mike Nemi, who's a pastor on staff at Meadowbrook, was preaching that year at the saw you at the poll rally. Uh, saw you at the poll is this big 
youth ministry thing that they do. Um, and it's like after see you at the poll because they saw you at the poll that morning, then that night they saw it, you know what I'm saying, you follow me? Okay, anyway. So he gets up, and the text that year for see at the poll was, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And it was like talking about prayer, all right? Once again, was that called a misapplication of the text? All right, they took the text. And he goes, y'all listen, he gets up to preach, and he says, listen, this text right here, it's taken out of context. This passage is actually about church discipline. And he preached church discipline to about 300, 400 teenagers. And I was like, yeah, let's go. All right. Like, I'm like, yes. My students were like so convicted. They were going, Tyler, is that really what that means? I'm like, yes, that's what that means. That's exactly what it means. That's what the text means. So what is church discipline? Church discipline is this. It's addressing unrepentant sin in the church. Addressing unrepentant sin in the church. If sin goes left unchecked, the church will go rampant. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians. That church was wild. Okay, we're going to talk about them in just a little bit. That church is wild. So church discipline, the goal of it is repentance, restoration, and redemption in Christ Jesus. So the goal of church discipline is repentance, restoration, and redemption in Christ Jesus. It's going and looking for sin in the church. And addressing it one-on-one, if the person doesn't repent, with two or three others. If that person doesn't repent, then you take them, take the sin before the church. If they don't repent after the church has addressed it, they are to be released from church membership and not allowed to take the Lord's Supper with us. It's a four-step process that Jesus lays out here. J. Carl Laney, who's a uh, theologian, says this, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying the defense mechanism, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. The illness is due, at least in part, to a lack of church discipline. John Dagg, a famous Baptist theologian, um, he's an old dead guy, one of my dogs, dead old guys. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. So as a church, we are supposed to address sin head on. Now let me tell you one of America's favorite verses. Only God can judge me. You ever heard that? Only God can judge me? Let me tell you why that's an American verse and not a Bible verse. Because it's nowhere in the scriptures. Y'all know who said that? Tupac. Tupac. People get that, 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 I think that is the most tattooed like, Bible verse in the world, and it's not even a Bible verse. Only God can judge me. Actually, number one, you don't want that, all right? You don't want God to be the one to judge you, okay? Because if he did, good luck. Secondly, this text is telling us to judge one another. Now, if you go back to Matthew 5, once again, properly interpreting the text, it says that why address the sin in your brother's eye? Why address the law, the speck in your brother's eye? If you got a log in your own. That's where it says, "Judge not, lest you be judged." All right? They take that verse out of context. What that's talking about is if I'm sitting here sinning, going out every weekend, cheating on my wife, I can't come to you and say, "Hey, listen, you're not showing up to church a lot." Do you see the hypocrisy there? So when we judge, we judge rightly with the judgment that we hold ourselves to. 
which is where church discipline comes in. So the first thing that we do in church discipline is private correction. Let me just rewind really quick. I want to I point this out. In the sword method I mentioned earlier, one of the things you ask is, is there a command to follow? This entire passage is all commands of Jesus. So if we do not practice these things, brothers and sisters, we are being disobedient to Jesus. I think a lot of churches are being disobedient to Jesus today. Amen? And I think that we have been like disobedient of Jesus in this church. And so, Father, will you just forgive us in this moment where we are unrepentant before you? And being disobedient because we don't practice this sometimes? Because this is the one that I think that we miss out on. Private correction. First off, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Private correction. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Can I tell you all one of the things that gets on my nerves the most? I mean, it just grinds my gears. I'm just going to be a confession this morning. Passive aggressiveness. Passive aggressiveness. Especially when it comes to addressing sin head on. Brother and sister, if I sin against you, if you're watching this online and if I've sinned against you, please talk to me head on. Please. Now, the pendulum swing of that is being a hammer looking for a nail, all right? I can lean into that sometimes. I can address sin, but I don't do it with what Paul commands us to, in gentleness. But he tells us to do this in private, one-on-one. That's what Jesus tells us to do, in private. Listen, if this would happen, I would be willing to say that 85% of the sin in the church could be stopped right there. 85% of church issues could be stopped right there. Through private correction, private rebuking. So if somebody sins against you, pick up the phone, call them, wear your mask, stand six feet away from them, six six feet away from them, and talk to them about what offended you. Please, for the sake of the church, do that. Don't walk around angry at them. Don't walk around being passive-aggressive with them. Private correction. Jesus commands us to do that. The second thing that he tells us to do is bringing in other believers. Now, this is where I told you to underline because we're looking for repetition in the text because that's important. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's going on here is that if I was, let's just say hypothetically that Luke was a sin against me, all right, I'm going to pick on Luke, okay? Luke sins against me. And if you're online, Luke's in the sound booth right now, so I'm looking at him. All right, Luke sins against me. He ate my waffle fries without me asking, okay? That's a massive sin. So I go to him and I say, listen, brother, I didn't like that. Like, you didn't ask. He's like, sorry, not sorry. Okay, first off, if I'm pitching a fit over waffle fries that big, then that ain't that big of a deal. But let's just say this. Let's, let's go further. Let's say that he lied to me. Let's say he lied to me. And I go to him and say, brother, that's out of character for you. Like, you need to repent, man. Like, you lied to me. Like, like, you lied. And let's say that he says, man, I'm sorry about that. But then he lies to me again. Okay, that's a sin issue inside his heart. And it's, he's unrepentant of it. He hasn't repented. He hasn't turned away from it. 
So I go and grab Trey. And I'm like, hey, Trey, listen, man. You know Luke just as well as I do. He's lying to me. And then Trey goes, man, he's lied to me too. Or, man, I haven't seen that in him. I haven't seen that. We need to go, we need to go talk to him. We need to go confront him out of love and gentleness. Now, why do we do this? This is what Jesus does. Now, once again, this is what's crazy. Jesus is actually using Scripture to prove Scripture this morning. Deuteronomy 19.15. Listen to what he says. A single witness shall not suffice against any person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what Jesus is saying is saying, hey, listen, go grab a brother, go grab a sister, and confront the sin so that the charge can be established, so that there can be evidence of this. So that way it's not a he said, she said issue. Do you see what's going on here? That way, that way Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you can confront it and there can be evidence of this charge if he doesn't repent. I would say, honestly, that if we privately corrected most of the time, repentance would happen. The problem is, is that we don't privately correct. We don't privately rebuke. We don't go to them in private and say, hey, listen, this is where you've sinned against me. And I pray that we do better about that. Now, the point of this is not to gang up on this believer, on this person who's in unrepentant sin. We're not going to them and being like, hey, man, you're sinning, you sinner. We're not doing that. No, we're going to them out of love and gentleness to restore them because what's the goal of church discipline? I mentioned it earlier. Repentance, restoration, and redemption in Christ Jesus. We go together in hope of repentance, restoration, and redemption. And listen, if you bring a brother or sister with you, guess what's going to happen? I will be willing to bet that they will repent. If they are a regenerate believer, if they are a regenerate believer, I'd be willing to bet they will repent. And I'm telling you this because this has happened to me before. This has happened to me before. I had a friend of mine um, who caught me in a sin. Um, I, I, had, I, had, I mean, I still will struggle with this from time to time. I'll take a story and I'll stretch it, all right, to really cover myself. You know what I'm saying? Really cover myself. Like if I don't do something, I'm like, oh, I'm going to stretch it. Had a friend of mine confront me about it. I'm like, man, thanks for confronting me about that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to repent. Well, it took two brothers and a sister coming to me confronting me head on and say, hey, listen, I'm seeing this pattern and it's damaging your witness. Like, it's damaging you, brother. Will you repent? Will you turn away from your sin, run to Jesus? Man, I broke down right there. I was like, listen, I didn't even realize it was still going on. Because James 1, I mean, James 1 gives us this really neat birth cycle of sin. It says that desire gives birth to temptation and then when temptation has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then once sin is fully grown, it leads to death. You have to kill sin while it is still young, brothers and sisters. And if you do not, it will grow, and it will grow until it completely overcomes you. The problem is, is that if sin is this massive tree that is growing from a heart that is so deeply rooted, we don't want to go into the roots and like rip it out because that's painful. So what we do is we just kind of trim it up and make it presentable on Sunday morning. You tracking with me? So that way nobody knows that you're really battling this really sin and all sin turns into is this personal struggle. Sin is so much more than a personal struggle, brothers and sisters. It is spiritual suicide. It is bringing death upon yourself. 
And that is why when somebody doesn't repent after private correction, you go to them with another believer and say, listen, we love you too much to watch you do this. Jesus loves you too much to watch you do this. Turn to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Now, step three. And I haven't seen this one happen a lot. I've seen this first two steps happen a lot, a good bit. I don't see this one happen a lot. But it happens. And I'll tell you in just a minute where it's happened at. Informing the church. All right, verse 16. I mean, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. This is the second time the Greek word for church is used in Matthew's gospel. First time is in chapter 16. All right, it's this Greek word, ekklesia, which means local assembly, the local gathering, the local church. This does not mean that you run over to a church across town and be like, let me tell you what Tyler Armstrong did. If I'm not a member of that church, they have no authority over my life. Do you realize that? That does not give you the right to run across to your buddy who goes over to this so-and-so church and be like, listen, we need to go get him. No, you go to the church that they're a member of. I'm a member of 12th Street Baptist Church. If there's an issue that gets this far, go to 12th Street. 12th Street has that authority over my life. I submitted to it when I joined this fellowship, all right? You submitted to it. If you're a member of this faith family, you submitted to it. So that's the beauty of the local church is that they have this power and this authority over the believer's life to correct sin. Now this may sound super unloving and embarrassing. You may be going, Tyler, you mean go to the church? Like the entire church? Yes. If the person is living in unrepentant sin and they are not turning away from that sin and it is spiritually killing them, you love them too much to watch them go this way. And David Platt says this, God loves us so much that when we are caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. The church in this time is not to act as the jury and the judge at this step in the process. They're to act as the open arm saying, I love you too much to leave you like this. Do y'all know where this has happened at? 1904, 12th Street Baptist Church. True story. We can go back into the back. There's some, uh, I, gotta, I don't really know where we put them, but there's a filing cabinet and there's all these notes of all these minutes from early business meetings. And I was digging through these minutes one day because I'm a history nerd and I'm just like that, all right? Like I love old things. And I look, and in the minutes from a 1904 meeting, they addressed sin with two members in their body. They said, listen, this this brother has been acting, um, he's been a public drunkard, all right? That was the word that was used. We don't hear that language a lot. Public drunkard. And then the other one was, they accused the lady of acting unchristianly. Or I don't really know what that means. She was acting like an uncross-like lady. I don't know what that means. And then as you read through the minutes, as they go, it's so interesting. A few months later, they removed these people from membership because they didn't repent. All right, so 12th Street Baptist Church has done this in our past. And we have done this in our present. Not removing people from membership, but going about and practicing church discipline. All right, so this is the fourth thing. So if they go to the church, they don't listen to the church. Listen to what he says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he refuses to listen even to the church, verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Jesus says, treat them like an unbeliever. That is hard, brothers and sisters. That is a hard word. 
treat them like an unbeliever. But why do we do this? Because they're acting like an unbeliever. If it gets to this point, if it gets to this point, they are not acting like a Christian. That's what I'm telling you. I don't see these second steps happen a lot. I see the first two happen a lot. I don't see it get to those third and fourth, but they ha- it does happen. Removing people from membership does happen. And what we say, I mean, seriously, this is what the church says. We love you too much to let you act like this. You're acting like an unbeliever, so you can't take the Lord's Supper with us. And until you repent of your sin, then you can come back into our fellowship. And until then, you are, no, you are not a part of our faith family. We do that to keep the church pure. We do that for the glory of God. And we also do it for the good of the person who is in sin. This is what 1 Corinthians 5 says. I told you all that the church was wild, right? Listen to this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. He's saying, listen, there's sin inside the church right now, inside y'all's churches, Paul. There's sin inside the church right now that even the pagans, those outside the church, wouldn't even tolerate. How many of y'all know a Christian that acts like the world, right? Yeah, we all know that. Some of us are, some of us are in this room right now even. But this guy right here, listen to this sin. For a man has his father's wife. Okay, whoa, okay. Hold on. That's a really serious sin. This is what Paul says. And you are arrogant. Aren't you, aren't you not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. They're just acting like, oh, whatever. And Paul says, aren't you not to mourn over this? For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. Listen to who you deliver this man to. To Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Give this man over to Satan, the enemy, so that his flesh may be destroyed, so that his soul may be saved. So when we remove people from membership, when the church removes people from membership, we're not doing this to be jerks. I've seen some churches do this to be jerks, but we're not doing this to be jerks. We're doing this so that they may be saved. So that their sin may be destroyed, so their flesh may be destroyed, so that their spirit may be saved. Because the goal of church discipline is repentance, restoration, and redemption in Jesus. The goal is not to just go around just picking on people and picking on people's sin. No, the goal is repentance so that we can all, as a body of believers, progress forward to Jesus together. The goal is to not combat sin on our own as lone wolves. No, we are to combat sin together as a faith family and move together and go together towards Jesus. That's the goal of church discipline, brothers and sisters. So how do we apply this text? All right, Jesus has given us this, his authority, verse 18. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is very similar language to what he tells Peter in Matthew 16, where he says, upon this rock I will build my church. I give you the authority, he says that. Tell Peter, I give you the authority. He has given the church authority in the matters of confronting sin in this passage. 
So what does that mean for us as believers? Brothers and sisters, when we confront sin, we are doing it in the authority of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 28, guess what he says? He has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. All authority. You know what the Greek word for all means? All. Not 98% of the authority, not 97% of the authority, not 99% of the authority, all of the authority. And so we go underneath his authority. Paul even references that in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, in the name of Jesus and in my spiritual presence, in my presence, he says, listen, in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered as man to Satan. John MacArthur says this, never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with her Lord than when dealing with sin to maintain the purity of the church. So when we're addressing sin, we're acting in accordance with heaven. The church is being given the authority by Jesus to say, you are living in sin. And the church has been given the authority to say, your sins have been forgiven by Jesus. Why? Because we have his word. And his word has given us this authority. That's what Matthew 18 has told us. Not only have we been given his authority, we've been given his support. Verse 19. We have the support of the Father. We have the support of the Father. When we look at this, again I say to you, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now we can take that one verse, apply it, and say, hey, listen. Mama, me and you are going to pray for a Range Rover. I asked for it, Father, give it to me. Is that how that verse works? No, this verse is in reference to church discipline the father is saying listen if we agree on this about anything we ask about this matter of somebody living in sin it will be done for them by my father in heaven so when we pray for repentance when we pray for these things the father is supporting us he is hearing our prayers because the goal of church discipline is repentance restoration and redemption in jesus and then the last verse the verse that is so taken out of context the one we tackle today Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How can we apply this to our church body? Well, first off, his presence is here among us this morning. Because as we gather, one of the things we do is we confront sin. You confront sin in your own personal heart, and we confront sin together. The Lord is among us. He is promising us his presence in the addressing of sin in his church. Because in these commands, he's commanding us, listen, do these things. Privately correct. Take two or three if they don't repent. Tell the church if they don't repent. Let them go if they do not repent for the sake of their soul. And I'm among you. Because where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So when two or three are gathered to lovingly confront a brother or sister living in unrepentant sin, Jesus is among you and he is in agreement with you. You have his authority, you have his support, you have his presence, brothers and sisters. Because in Jesus there is restoration, repentance, and redemption. So to the unbeliever in this room right now, I encourage you, turn to Jesus. Run to the one who saved your soul. Run to the one who gave his life for you. But to the believers in this room this morning, Confront sin in the church. Confront sin in the church. Church has a unique opportunity where 
a lot of people in town think we're a, a pretty big church, and in a lot of ways we are a larger church for this area, but we're not that big, all right? We're not that big. We, know, we have the ability to know a lot of people in this church, especially now during COVID-19. We got one service going on, all right? Well, we're doing pretty good about that. Listen, confront sin head on. Don't be passive-aggressive. Privately correct. If that person's unrepentant, come get me. Come get Thomas. Come get Charles. Come get Tracy. Come get somebody to go with you. I'd actually ask you to probably get one of their friends. Because when most people see a pastor in the room, they tense up. Go get somebody and lead them to Jesus. Lead them to Jesus. This is a command to you from Jesus Christ this morning to do these things. And as we go, and as we confront sin... For where two or three are gathered in his name and his authority and his power and his presence by his support as we confront sin, Jesus is among us. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that we will passionately confront sin. That God, that we will make sure that we are going out of our way to make sure that sin does not rear its ugly head in our friends' lives, inside our church body, and that we will tackle it head on. But that, God, that we will go by the steps that you've commanded us to in Matthew 18. Father, don't let us misapply Bible verses. Help us to properly study the Bible. Proper Bible study is not hard. It is time-consuming, but it is not hard. Father, help us to be passionate about your word because you are passionate about your word. And help us to confront sin. In the presence of Jesus. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet. And we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus. As 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.